You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show. This is a Christmas episode. This will come out, looks like December 22nd, 23rd, so the week of Christmas. So I thought I would take a look at a blog article I came across on a website that I like to frequent. They have, I think, really good contributors. It's called the Havoc Journal, havocjournal.com. That's H-A-V-O-K journal.com. And they have articles from veterans, first responders, um, spouses of veterans and so forth on different topics, such as uh, articles about our country, the world, politics, national security, fitness, culture, what have you. You can follow them on Instagram and on Facebook and Twitter, obviously. But yeah, the, the articles I find um, provocative and engaging, and they get me to think. And so, especially right about now, because as a Lutheran pastor, this is supposedly uh, supposed, supposed to be the busiest time of the year, one of the busiest times of the year for me, but I'll let you in on a little trade secret. Because everybody assumes you're busy during this time of year, everyone leaves you alone. And thanks to modern technology and hard drives, uh, now I am usually uh, left alone by people who think I'm too busy. And so I'm actually the opposite of being too busy during this time of year, which is all right. It, it allows me to to engage people and to follow up on stuff and to uh, have conversations that normally I wouldn't have because I am busy. But then that being said, for those of you who don't know, um, for myself as a recovering alcoholic now since 1998, and as a pastor, this is also the time of year, if I think I might have mentioned it, but this is the time of the year, usually Thanksgiving to New Year, New Year's, that I also have the most conversations with folks who are suicidal, who struggle with issues of mental illness, who struggle themselves with um, addiction, alcoholism, abuse, all because of pain and the pain that they're in, the pain that they've experienced sometimes from as long, far back as they can remember. And so Christmas isn't necessarily a time of great joy and glad tidings uh, for me or for the folks that I serve in my congregation or at least not in the way that we tend to think of joy, I think, a kind of emotional, slappy, clappy, hands-in-the-air, praisey kind of attitude that everything is great, and we're really excited to be here, and it's all about Jesus and the birth of Jesus and Christmas and decorations and gifts and all that go with it. And that is a part of Christmas for sure, and it's a part of a tradition that, uh, well, it's actually more recent and more consumer-driven than anything, if you want to do your own research on that. Santa Claus and Christmas trees and parades and so forth are more driven by Macy's and other businesses in the early 20th century. Coca-Cola is basically responsible for the way that we understand Santa Claus now. And so a lot of what is wrapped up in Christmas traditions is one, rather recent within the last hundred years or so, and two, isn't specifically what I would call, you know, quote-unquote Christian. But because they're associated with Christianity, they get lumped in together, and then people associate Christmas trees and lights and decorations and wreaths and presents and everything that goes with it as, well, this is all Christian stuff. And it's not. It's cultural. And if anything, it's a civil religious institution or tradition more than a Christian uh, institution or religion. It's just like I said, the two got lumped together because in the 20th century in the United States, the dominant religion was Christianity. So Christianity kind of overshadowed all 
cultural practices and traditions, and essentially because the people that come into church on Sunday also are a part of the culture, they bring their presuppositions with them, they bring their prejudices and their expectations with them, their traditions, their uh, rituals, and so forth, and over time, those things get assumed into the institution and become institutionalized themselves. So for me, it's important this time of year as an adult convert, but also then as a, a Christian minister, as a pastor, as a, as a priest, in the classic sense, that I also hold that tension between, well, what really is Christmas about involving the birth of Jesus and so forth, but also what's all this this flotsam and jetsam that's kind of gathered around the original purpose for celebrating Christmas for us as Christians? And so I found this article by uh, Scotty Domage. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name right, Scotty. I apologize if I'm not, but it's D-O-M-E-I-J. So I'm just going to pronounce it Scotty Domage. But she wrote this, this article last year on December 22nd. Or no, December 22nd, 2019. She wrote uh, today. It came out today, and here I found it today. It's called The Gifts of Brokenness. <laughs> so there you go. There's serendipity. So Scotty Domage wrote this article, The Gifts of Brokenness, which came out today. And so here I am reading it. <laughs> but let's dive in. And this is a little bit further down in the article, about halfway down the article. And the subheading is Finding Joy in Pain. Pain pillaged my first Christmases with my sons without their father. The financial hardship and emptiness of those lonely Christmases engulfed me in depression. I felt as helpless as that babe in a manger thrust into a cold, inhospitable world. Haunted by the spirit of Christmas's past, I mourned the loss of our family's meaningful rituals. What single parent has not experienced Mary's feelings? Astonished, perplexed, afraid, anxious, and incredulous. And the God of disguise and surprise came to reside right where I lived. The words of the real God, the warm God engaged my heart, frozen by morning right where I was. Needy, helpless, despondent, weak, and angry. Emmanuel, God with us, wrapped me in his love and the true spirit of Christmas. On that first Christmas morning, the angels identified my feelings and infused me with hope. Quote, they were terror-stricken, but the angel said, Do not be afraid. I have good news for you. There is great joy coming. And that is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 10. So earlier in the article, Scotty discusses living with not only the death of her father at Christmas time, and then later the death of her uh, son, first class Christopher Domage, who was killed in Afghanistan a couple months before Christmas. But then also, of course, being a single mother and having to live then with that as well, that here I am without my, my son, um, also without my father, also without the, the children's father, and all that goes with that. And what do you do with that pain? What do you do when your heart is broken, wide open? I know for myself, for our family, our oldest child, he's 16, he's going to be 17 in a month, when uh, Annie was pregnant with him, we were told that he would not be born, that he would die in utero because of several 
malformations and defects, the most significant being that his, the plates of his skull did not develop fully and close, and therefore he had a large hole on the crown of his head, and then the membrane that surrounds uh, the brain was being pushed through that hole, and it was full of spinal fluid, and so he would die because uh, it wouldn't develop, and he would not develop, and more than likely then he wouldn't go full term. He would die inside of her. And then we were told that even if he did survive birth, passing through the birth canal with his skull being the way that it was, he would be vegetable. He would become a vegetable. He would be a vegetable his whole life, and he would never be, quote-unquote, a normal person. And then after that, we were told even if he did survive birth and he wasn't a vegetable, he would have severe learning disabilities for the rest of his life, and his brain would be malformed, and so therefore we needed to temper our expectations. And so for the third trimester of that pregnancy then for the last several months, never having had a child before, all of our expectations, all of our naive, childish, juvenile, romantic expectations of what to expect when you're expecting your first child were shattered by this doctor and then by other doctors and specialists and the chromosomal therapist that was sent in to counsel us and others. And I thought up to that point 16 years ago that I had known heartbreak. I had broken up with my, my high school sweetheart, the love of my life. I suffered a nervous breakdown as a consequence of that when I was, oh, what was I, 19, 20 years old, 20 years old, I think. And I had hurt myself. Others had hurt me. I had seen numerous divorces and spousal abuse. I was abused. I thought that I had experienced heartbreak. I thought that I knew what it meant to be heartbroken. But when the doctors told us that my son would die before he was born, and at that point, too, you're so helpless as a parent because, yes, you're helpless when you have a baby. You don't really have that much control. You do your best to keep him or her safe and to take care of them as best you can. But you also live with the constant anxiety and fear that comes with this knowledge, this conscious knowledge that you don't really have control here. And this is a very fragile thing that you're holding in your hands. And that at any moment, there are so many different things you imagine could happen to take him or her away from you. And you live with that as a parent then for the rest of your life. It never goes away. Even when your children grow up and can pretty much take care of themselves, you still worry about them and you still fear for them and you still suffer the anxiety that comes with being a parent. Because you'll never love anyone more than your child because they are you, but not you. They're 50% you and 50% your spouse. And so you, you hold your own flesh in your hands and it changes you as a human being. It changes you as a person because whatever you think love means, at least I'm just speaking of my own experience, um, whatever you thought love meant, whatever you think it means to love someone, when you when you are told that you're going to have a baby, that's, that's one thing. When you see the baby on the ultrasounds and you hear the heartbeat, that's another thing that's even greater than that. But on the spectrum of, of love, when you put your hands on your wife's belly and you feel this child inside her kick, for example, or push his back up against her stomach in order to basically get closer to you to feel your hand or to put their head where your hand is at, that's something altogether in itself. And then when they're born and to be a part of that and to experience that, it's 
It's literally earth-shattering. It's heartbreaking in the best possible way. But when you're told then that your child will not survive full term, that your child will die, it shatters you in a different way. It breaks you wide open. It breaks your heart. And you not only start to question yourself and what you could have done or what you might have done because for this to happen. Well, what did I do to cause this? And even more so for my wife as the mother because she's carrying this life inside of herself. But you question God. You question everything. And one of the most difficult aspects of this kind of pain, the kind of pain that I think Scotty is describing in her article is, I never stopped believing in God. I never lost hope that God is Emmanuel, God with us. I never stopped believing that Jesus is the Savior, that he is, that he is God. But I, I hated him. I hated him with everything that I could, I could muster up within myself. I hated him with all of my thoughts and with all of my heart and with all my strength. I hated him. Because there is nothing that I loved more and there's nothing that I wanted more than for my son to survive and to be born. And so for that last trimester in particular, my anger at God allowed me to get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other during the day. It allowed me to basically play the part of the person known as Donovan Riley when I was going to seminary, going to classes, interacting with other students, talking with professors, teaching, interacting even with my wife. I played the part of the human being known as Donovan Riley, but inside I felt like I was watching a TV show, that I was not participating in reality. I wasn't engaging in reality. I was just observing it because I was in shock and I was traumatized and every doctor's checkup and the closer we got to birth and he didn't die, uh, my pain and my anxiety and my anger toward God, it increased because I had no control over the situation. I couldn't help my wife. I, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know, I didn't know how to pray. Everybody that tried to help us actually made it worse and it's not their fault, but they didn't know what to say. And some people avoided us because they just, they couldn't, they couldn't deal with it themselves because they were parents or because they were pregnant, especially. They just, it was too difficult to be around us and to, to basically be in that bubble of pain that Annie and I walked in. And so in a similar way to what she describes with, with Mary's feelings, astonished, perplexed, afraid, anxious, incredulous, we went through that as parents as well, just like Joseph and Mary did at the birth of Jesus, that you don't understand why this is happening, and there's no answers. And the doctor is saying it's literally one in a million chance that this could happen. And in fact, there are only two people in the United States that actually have the birth defects that my son has. He's the second, and then there's a, there was another girl in Ohio. And, and again, thank God, but the doctor that diagnosed her in Ohio and performed the first operation of its kind had actually taken uh, a job here at uh, United Children's Hospital in St. Paul, and he's the one who then diagnosed my son and operated on my son later. So spoiler alert, he lived. But um, to find joy in pain, especially that kind of pain, the kind of pain that comes with mourning the death of someone that you love more than yourself, someone in my case that I love more than, than God, and that is... In, in the Christian sense, that's my confession of sin, that 
you know, the first commandment is you will have no other gods before me in, in, in my church tradition. And historically, the explanation of that commandment, the first commandment is we should fear, love, and trust God above all things. But there's nobody that I fear, love, and trust more than my children. There's, no, there's, there's nobody, there's nothing in this world that I wouldn't sacrifice for more than my children. There's no one that breaks my heart more than my children. And yet, the gift of brokenness is just that, that if I had a choice, and this is the crazy dichotomy of life, is that if I were given the choice to not go through that again and to not have my son, or to go through it again and live through it again and not be guaranteed that he would be born and that it was a one in a million chance that he would be born, I'd still do it. I'd still do it again. Because uh, that birth changed my life. Upside down, backwards, left, right. It, it, you know, my children bring me more pain on a daily basis than just about anybody else because like I said, they're my own flesh. And there's nobody who gets me better, for example, than my, my daughter Alma, who has almost the same personality as I do. And so in the same way that we get each other on a level that's, that's beyond even words most of the time, that also means that we drive each other crazy in, in ways that are beyond words most of the time. And then the twins, my seven and nine-year-old, we call them the Irish twins, Hoshea and Hillel. It's the same thing as I just, I look at them and I'm just stunned that, that they exist that they're here, and yet they're so small and so fragile and so naive and so much. They're so vulnerable, you know? And so, and then my two-year-old, my, my shield maiden, and I look at her and she's so strong at two, and she's got her life so together at two, at two years old, so much more than I think my 16-year-old does at certain points. And yet the same thing is that I look at her and I think, why do I train so hard? Why do I train five days a week? Why am I in the gym? Why do I live the life that I live? Why have I embraced a warrior ethos? And it is for her. It's for them. Because as I've said before, when asked the question, what would you die for? I'd say, well, my kids, without really thinking about it critically. And then when I did really sit back and think about it, it's not that I would die for them, but rather I love them so much I'd be willing to kill for them. And that's a different thing altogether taking another life to protect a life, as I've, I've said before, is pretty much the most loving thing you can do. You know, there's no greater love that you can show another person than to stand between them and whoever it is that intends to do them harm or inflict pain or even death upon them. Because there's no greater gift that you can give someone else than life. Because you're given one life and you're given one shot at life and it doesn't matter whether you resent it or you're grateful for it, whether you squander it or whether... It is full of gifts. You get one. And there is joy in that and there's pain in that because there's joy and pain in life. And each of us in our own way then has lived too much and enjoyed too much and suffered too much and been challenged too much and struggled too much and yet that is life itself. Life is pain and it is struggle and it is wrestling with the question of belief and is there a higher power is all of this an accident? How did we get here? What is the purpose of my life? Why do I exist? And then to take all those questions, roll them up in a little body, and then have that little body put in your hands and, and be told, both inside your own heart and then from without, this is it. This is the purpose and goal of your life right here. This, this child in your hands, that's the purpose and goal of life. That's why you were created. That's why you exist.
And yet, as she writes, the god of disguise and surprise came to reside right where I lived. And the words of the real god, the warm god, engaged my heart, frozen by morning, right where I was. Needy, helpless, despondent, weak, and angry. Exactly. Emmanuel, God with us, wrapped me in his love in the true spirit of Christmas. On that first Christmas morning, the angels identified my feelings and infused me with the hope. They were terror-stricken, but the angels said, Do not be afraid. I have good news for you. There is great joy coming. And so Scotty continues, I gave the free gifts only a broken heart can afford to those whose choices and the unwanted circumstances that devastated me. Forgiveness. To my children, my presence, and all my love. To myself, grace. To the Christ child, embracing my brokenness and his. Brokenness was not the end of my story, but the place I must pass through to find home and the joy of his Christmas peace. And that's the thing. You can call it absurd. You can call it juvenile. You can call it archaic. Uh, whatever you want to, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it and define it. But for myself anyways, and, and for Scotty as she writes here, this is what we believe. This is really the purpose of Christmas. It's, in, it's expressed in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it has been embraced by people since then even. And it was hoped for in the people that were there before Jesus was born. And so this hope, and yet this expectation, and this hope that it looks forward to the birth of this Savior who's been prophesied about, and the look back in hope to this one who was born, and who, in my tradition, we confess, was born, lived, died, and rose again from the dead on the third day. And like I said, as a former atheist, I embrace the absurdity of that confession. I don't try and shy away from how ridiculous that sounds, because in my experience, I've buried a lot of people. I've buried babies. I've buried children. I've buried people my age. I've buried 99-year-old women who died in their sleep. And not a single one of them got up from the grave and came home. And on the flip side, everybody knows that gods don't die. That's kind of one of the basic premises of any theology of any religion is that what makes gods gods and us us is the fact that gods don't die. And so I embrace the absurdity of that. That is what Christmas is. The root of Christmas is the absurdity of this confession that this child born in some nowhere little city to some nobody parents would be, is the savior of not just Israel, but the whole world. And that everything, all of history, hangs, hinges upon his birth, death, and resurrection. I get that that's absurd. Tertullian, an early church theologian, well, not so early, but uh, at least, you know, he's pre-Middle Ages, pre-Medieval. That's what he said, I believe, because it's absurd. Rene Descartes says something very similar, or Pascal. Pascal says something very similar. And that's the point, is that Christianity is absurd because the confession is absurd to any reasonable, rational person. It doesn't make any sense. That's why it attracts those who are broken and those who are at their bottom and those who are without hope and those who have no place left to go. I've never found greater faith. I've never found more people who confess the Christian faith than when I lived in third world countries, where 
I went expecting there to be little if no faith whatsoever because I thought, well, these people are so poor and they don't have anything, so why would they possibly believe in God? And then I got there, this naive 24-year-old still trying to figure out what he believed about God and whether he could even accept what Christians were saying about God, whether I should believe in what the Bhagavad Gita taught or Torah or the Quran or any number of different religious texts I read. And here I found people of extraordinary faith, and I found eight-year-olds who were wiser than I'll ever hope to be, and I found people who were so humble that I envied their humility, and yet I would ask, well, but you have nothing. It's not like you have very little. You have, you have nothing. You sleep on dirt, and your door has no door, and your windows have no panes, and you have no table to, to eat at, and you have a hole in the floor where you cook in. And that's their point, is that strip everything away. Strip all the privilege away. Strip all the luxury and leisure away. Strip away everything that we take for granted that we're just entitled to and what's left. What's left is the question of why am I here? How did I get here? Where do I come from? What is the purpose and goal of my life? You strip that away, you start asking some really serious questions. And, and I did too, as a consequence. But she writes here, I gave the free gifts that only a broken heart can afford, and that's the point, is that when you have nothing, when your heart is broken, and others look at you with pity, or as I said, they try to avoid you because you make them uncomfortable, your pain is palpable to them, and they just can't stand to be in your presence. It's just too much to ask. It's too much emotionally to ask. To those whose choices and the unwanted circumstances that devastated me, I gave them the gift that only a broken heart can afford, which is Forgiveness. And the word forgiveness means I no longer remember your sin. I no longer remember your selfishness. And so when my oldest was born and he didn't die and he wasn't born a vegetable and he wasn't born mentally ill or mentally retarded. In fact, he just, he's a junior in high school. Yeah, he's a junior in high school and he just finished his first semester of college at the same time. So it turns out he's not a vegetable and he's not mentally handicapped, even though he tries to prove to me every day that he's mentally handicapped by his behaviors. I, it's funny, if those of you are familiar with that 70s show, uh, I've slowly become Red Foreman because of my oldest son, that I just constantly call him a dumbass now. And we laugh about it because he appreciates it. And obviously, I don't I mean any in ill will or I'm not trying to be malicious. It's just, again, he is me, but not me. And I am stunned at how stupid I must have been when I was 16 years old because he is a extremely well-behaved, polite, uh, faithful young man who is remarkable in every way to me. I'm stunned that he's my son because I look at him and go, how did this happen? I had like, literally you had like me and your mother to, as like templates for, for a life. And we're both so broken and damaged by our own uh, upbringing and the abuse that we both went through. And we've suffered through so much trauma to get here. <clears throat> the fact that you are who you are is stunning. <laughs> and yet the first thing that I had to do is I had to ask God for forgiveness for my anger. And yet at the same time, I'm still angry at him for all of this. And I always will be. I know that because my heart broke and it never healed. It never, it was never pieced back together. And so I don't, I don't accept or buy into the platitudes and cliches. You know, God heals a broken heart and all that. Because if you have children, you know that to, to love someone more than yourself, it, it breaks you wide open because it's, it's almost contrary to your nature. There's no one that you, you're supposed to love more than yourself. There's no one you're supposed to care about more than yourself. 
and then to care about someone else more than yourself, it breaks your heart in two ways then because it yanks you out of yourself and you have to leave yourself behind. And so you lose yourself and then you lose yourself to this person or these people that you have no control over who will drive you crazy because they remind you so much of you and yet they're not you. And so every day, we tell them that we love them first thing in the morning. And every night, no matter what happens, we tell them that we love them and we ask for their forgiveness. And we ask each other constantly for forgiveness when we do wrong by each other and we make a mess of things for each other. The first thing that we do once we've calmed down and emotions have leveled off is to say, I'm sorry, forgive me. Because in the end, that gift, forgiveness, forgiveness is actually what gives birth to love. In fact, you can't love selflessly. You can't love self-sacrificially, I believe, unless you can first forgive. And yeah, you do have to learn to forgive yourself and to say, hey, I did do things wrong in the past. I do regret this or that decision. I do wonder what would have happened if I had zigged instead of zagged. But at the end of the day, you're here now and you're alive and there's nothing you can do about what happened in the past. It happened and it happened the way that it was going to happen. And you can't go back and, and do it over or reverse time or the consequences. So if you can't forgive yourself, go find someone to pronounce that forgiveness to you. And likewise, then, forgive those around you. Even when it pains you to forgive those around you. Because the only person that you end up injuring and harming when you don't forgive others is yourself. You, end up in, you, you basically end up inflicting wounds upon yourself because the person who did wrong by you has moved on. In fact, a lot of times in my experience, they don't even realize they did wrong by you or that they hurt you because you didn't express anything at the time. You didn't communicate at the time how bad it hurt you or maybe you didn't even comprehend at the time how much damage what this person said or did, what the effect it had on you. And they go on, they move on. And sometimes they roll over you, sometimes they go around you, sometimes they run away from you. But if you don't forgive them, then that resentment is, it's just like taking a knife and cutting yourself over and over and over again. So to my children, she writes, my presence and all my love. Exactly. Especially to the dads. Show up for your kids. Show up for them. My dad said to me in 2001, I did my job. I put a roof over your head, clothes on your back, and food on the table. And now I'm done. My job is done. And I looked at him and said, oh, so that's all I was to you, a job. And he said, well, yeah, pretty much, which sums up my relationship with my dad and why I don't have one. And yes, I actually have forgiven him, and I have called after 12 years of not talking, and I forgave him. And we had a conversation, and I followed up and called him to have another one, and he chose not to call me back. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. But he's a person who experienced pain beyond anything that I can possibly imagine, even after what I described to you about my son. He did two tours of duty in Vietnam. He served behind enemy lines in ways that he'll never talk about with me or anybody. And the pain that he experienced uh, from those two tours in Vietnam broke him. It killed him. It literally killed him. And whoever it was that the United States Army sent home, it was... It was him. It was his body. He, he came home, and he was definitely in that lazy boy watching ESPN every day. But whoever the person was that went to Vietnam died in Vietnam. So I get that. 
you got to show up for your kids and you, you can't give them 99% of your time, attention, and love. You can't give them 60 or 20. It's you're all in or you're not. Because again, this is life. You get one shot, you get one life. And for better or worse, whether you chose or not, whether you prayed over or not, whether it was an accident or not, a kind of, oh, I can't believe we're pregnant kind of moment, or we've been trying for so long. However this child is born, however they come to live, they're a gift. They're a gift. And you show up for them. And you give them all of yourself. All of it. Not only all of your love, but all of your forgiveness. Everything. Even your pain and frustration and anxiety. But as she writes too, to myself, I give grace. That is, I, I show favor. I say, you know what? You know what? It's all right. It's all right. You don't have to carry this. You don't have to carry this burden. This is, this is not your cross to bear. And so the reason then that, for myself anyways, and, and for her, the reason that we then go to Christ, which just means anointed one or savior is the simplest way to say it, this is the child who is our savior. This is the Christ child, the anointed child, the one who has been chosen. Chosen to do what? To die for the sin of the world. To die for the selfishness of the world and embracing then all of my brokenness into himself. Brokenness was not the end of my story, she writes, but the place I must pass through to find home and the joy of his Christmas peace. Well, that's a thing, and I know uh, for those of you who are still listening thus far, you're like, what is he talking about? He doesn't usually go this deep into Christianity. Well, like I said, this is Christmas, and if you are still with me, I appreciate listening, and I appreciate your time and attention, but like I said... For me, this is important stuff, and I hope it's important for you too. And like I said in the last episode, if nothing else, this is my voice, and this is me talking to my children long after their mother and I am in the ground. And you can hear this and listen to this and reflect on it. And for, again, for good, bad, or indifferent, forgive me for where I failed you and where I didn't live up to your expectations or meet your expectations. Forgive me. And so brokenness is not the end of any of our stories, but instead it's the place, it's the cross that we pass through. It's the death that we pass through to find home and the joy of his Christmas peace. And this is the thing, the word joy, whether in Hebrew or Greek, it literally means to be satisfied, which again is kind of a Latin, an, an, you know, anglicized Latin word. It means to, to be satisfied means it is enough. Sadis est, it is enough, that's enough. So true joy is not jump up and down and clap and scream and, and be overcome with emotion. True joy is to simply say, this is enough. It's enough. And so Christmas peace, Christmas joy is simply to sit back and say, it is enough. Whatever that means for you, it is enough. For myself as a Christian, it is enough that I believe that Jesus was born and that he lived and died for me and for people like Scotty who are brokenhearted, and for the whole world, and even those people that reject him and deny that he was ever even born or that he was even a real man. He still died for that too. And so this brokenness, this pain that we pass through, this pain that leads to our death, this pain that grinds us into nothing, we have to pass through it to find our way home. And that's really the joy of Christmas. That's the purpose of retelling the story, retelling this historical narrative over and over and over again. Because as she writes, when my firstborn was killed, 
the life and death of that baby born long ago gave my shattered heart hope for our joyful reunion in our eternal home in heaven. Like I preached in, in church this morning, that Jesus doesn't just say, I am life, that I give you life, that I am the word of God that created you and gave you life and breathed breath into you, but I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who raises you from the dead as well as the one who gives you life. So I give you life, but I also give you new life. And so that is our hope, is that even when our firstborn is killed, even if our firstborn isn't, isn't dead in the womb and isn't turned into a vegetable passing down the birth canal and isn't born with severe mental handicaps, it doesn't matter whether they live or they die because what matters is that life and death are framed and they're founded upon this one baby who was born 2,000 years ago, who was born to give Scotty's shattered heart hope and my, and my wife's heart hope for a reunion, a coming back together at the last day. That's what the resurrection and all the talk about resurrection is about. It's not pie in the sky. It's not, I'm going to go to heaven and get angels' wings and play a harp. It's not, again, eternal bliss without feelings, without anything that resembles now. But instead, the resurrection, the last day, the thing that Jesus is born to, to lead us to, at least as, as the New Testament you know, formulates it, is this world that he created and then everything that is selfish and everything that we have done to inflict pain upon this world and suffering upon this world and death upon this world, all of that is stripped away and removed. And all that is left is the original creation, the way it was always intended to be. And so it's not like we leave this world and then God destroys it because it's garbage. That's actually more of a Greco-Roman philosophical approach. But rather... This world, this good old world that God created and called good in the first chapter of Genesis in the Bible is simply going to be restored. It is going to be reunited with his creator in a way that everything is restored, even our relationships with those who have died before us, those who die today, and those who die after us. And so whether my firstborn died in the womb or was born and lives and dies tonight or dies 80 years from now, it doesn't matter because my hope in the midst of pain, my joy in the midst of my pain is that, that this, this, this word of God that was born, that became a man, flesh and blood, so that he could die, also rose from the dead on the third day, so that just as he lived and died and rose from the dead, that I also might receive the promise that I will live and I will die and I will be raised from the dead at the last day. And so then she continues, why was the Christ child born? Just as warriors are wounded and broken and die and sacrifice so we can live in peace, Christ's purpose was also born to be wounded, broken, die, and sacrifice his life so we can find inner peace and joy in this world and the next. Merry broken Christmas. <laughs> I like that. And that really is the truth, is that people nowadays, <laughs> my wife actually offended a customer service rep at Amazon by, by saying Merry Christmas to him. And his response was, uh, yeah. Well, anyways, you have a nice week. Again, I'm not saying he had to say Merry Christmas back. I just think it's funny that we've gotten to the point in our culture where Merry Christmas is considered hate speech by people. <laughs> but this, this actually gets right to the root of what Christmas is about. Merry broken Christmas. 
And maybe that's why people are so resentful in their own way towards Christmas. I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. I'm not saying that it's logical or illogical. I'm not saying it's, you know, stop being a snowflake and, and suck it up or any of that stuff. I'm not saying that. But I can appreciate, as I said at the beginning, that the flotsam and jetsam of our culture and all of these different traditions, which are primarily consumer-driven and have their roots in consumer culture and business and marketing, because they've attached themselves and the church has allowed them to attach themselves to the church over the years, the whole purpose and meaning and root of Christmas is lost amongst the lights and the noise and the false expectations and the trite cliches and platitudes and all of the things that surround Christmas that have nothing to do with Christmas whatsoever. And so, again, I would ask you who are listening to forgive me or forgive the church this time of year for what it's done to stand in the way of the truth about Christmas, that the true confession of the manger, the true confession of the birth of Jesus, the true confession of the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph, and, and on and on and on in every generation for the past 2,000 years is Mary broken Christmas. Because that's why Jesus was born, for the broken, for those in pain, for those who can't say, I'm satisfied, it's enough. Because can any of us actually say with any honesty that it's ever enough, that we are ever enough, that other people are ever enough for us, that it's, that anything is ever enough. Because I think anyways, after 48 years of being on this planet, that no, it's never enough. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. So she, she concludes with the prophet Isaiah chapter 53, which is a very common Christmas and Easter reading, or at least Good Friday reading. And so I'll end with this, why Jesus was born. Who believes what we have heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment. And that made us whole. Through his bruises, we are healed. We have all, like sheep who have wandered off and gotten lost, we've all done our own thing, gone our own way. And God has piled all our sins, everything that we've done wrong on him, on him. He was beaten. He was tortured. But he did not say a word like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, and like a sheep being sheared. He took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, 
and even though he had never hurt a soul or said one word that was not true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it. Life. Life. And more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he will see that it is worth it and be glad he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones as he himself carries the burden of their sins. Therefore, I will reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honors, because he looked death in the face and he did not flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many. He took up the cause of all the black sheep. And so to all of you, my black sheep, Merry Broken Christmas. We'll see you next week. Peace.